Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you from here again. Uh, it's been a while since I've had the opportunity to preach, and it is a, it's an honor for me. I'm really excited about it. As most of you know, I've been uh, raising money for our church plant so that we can continue this mission that God's called us to. And uh, church planting's hard, you know. Uh, Pastor Autry, Matt's been, been in it about six years now. I've been doing it going on four years, and uh, it's difficult. And, you know, sometimes you, you, you see some, some churches just, you know, take off, you know. And, uh, you know, this is probably oversimplifying it a little bit, but I was thinking about this actually this morning. I, I think there's really, and again, I realize it's a generalization, but I think there's really two main ways to plant churches. You get people to show up to something, or you get people to show up for someone, there's no question in our minds why all of you are here this morning. You're here to worship your king, Jesus. You're here to taste and see that the Lord is good. You're here to hear from God's word. And this morning's sermon's called Words Matter. And we're going to go to God's word now in James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord God, it has been a while since I've had the pleasure of preaching your word, and God, I pray that you help me and everyone listening to remember that what I say means nothing if it is not of you. God, I pray, would you use me to speak to your people? Move me out of the way, and let anything I say that is not of you be forgotten. And let your word take root in the hearts of your people and grow into something that is a blessing to them 
a blessing to others, and that is glorifying to you. I ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. This podium could use a cup holder. The main idea of this passage and this sermon this morning is this. The key to growing in holiness is taming the tongue. Maybe that sounds strange. Sounds like a provocative statement. I don't intend for it to be. It's just what James is saying here. He's alerting us to something in our lives that is a source of sin and that really kind of goes unnoticed or undetected by us, mostly. The tongue's powerful, more powerful than we realize. You think about the fuse box in your home. You open it up and there's dozens of switches that control the electricity to different sections of your house, right? And then there's the master switch, the big one, that controls all of them. You turn it off, the whole house is without power. If it doesn't work properly, nothing else works. James says the tongue is like that. So it's not that there's not other areas of our lives that we need to work on. It's not that we don't commit other sins. It's just that this one in particular is damaging. You know, some people might say, we, well, we shouldn't focus on behavior so much. And that's true. We don't want to make the Christian life just a long list of have-tos. But this is a heart problem. It, it, you know, it's, it, it's not just a behavior problem. This, this is a moral issue, not just a manners issue. You know, Jesus says, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, 34. Our speech is the primary evidence of our fallen state. You ever thought about it that way? It's, it's not something we, we really talk about a lot we, or even think of, really. Nor are we told that a controlled tongue is the key to blessing. Peter says it is. 1 Peter 3.10, he's quoting Psalm 34. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. As my brother Joseph prayed a minute ago, God created everything in existence with a word. Words matter. Our words matter. And as creatures made in the image of God, we are to think God's thoughts after him. And if we think God's thoughts after him, our speech is going to sound more like Christ. Because he is the word that took on flesh in order to redeem us. All of us, including our speech. Amen? James, the brother of Jesus, writes this to early Jewish Christians. And y'all might not realize this, but the book of James is probably the earliest book we have in the New Testament. So just because it comes kind of toward the end of your Bible, keep in mind, this was, this was to some of the earliest Christians that had, had converted out of Judaism into Christianity. That's, that's who he's talking to. And so it is very Jewish in nature. It's, it's, it's moral exhortation stuff, like the book of, he, or book of uh, Proverbs. So we have to recognize that when we're reading James, we're reading a book of imperatives. 
That means they're instructive. Imperatives are telling you what you should do. And if the Bible is the very word of God, and it is, then these imperatives are from God's own mouth, and we should obey them. There are actually more imperatives in the book of James than any other book in the New Testament, as a matter of fact. It's a, it's a running exhortation and admonishment to be and act like a Christian. It, James is talking about how to live as a Christian, not how to become one. And, and, and so you, you don't get as much of a, a life, death, burial, and resurrection aspect of the gospel as you do in Paul's letters, for instance. And unfortunately... What many preachers will do then is they'll just throw this away and say, well, we can't keep the law anyway, so flee to Christ. No. The good news of the gospel is not only that we blew it and God saves us, but that he releases us from the bondage of sin and enables us to obey. That's how he's righting the wrongs in the world and redeeming it. That's how he's filling the earth with his glory. He doesn't just release us from condemnation for sin, but the power of sin so that by God's grace we can obey and be the salt and light in the world that he's called us to be. So there's no dichotomy or or contradiction here between the life and work of Christ and the cross and how to live as though it actually has an effect on your life. That said... James's words here are not just about words, it's about holiness. James is suggesting that controlling the tongue leads to master control of ourselves and our lives. Like like a bit in the mouth of a horse, he says, or like a rudder of a ship that turns the whole thing, or like the fuse box example I gave a a moment ago. The key to growing in holiness is taming the tongue. I got three points for you this morning, okay? The positive the negative, and the standard. The positive. Taming the tongue doesn't just mean not saying what you shouldn't say. It means saying the things you should say. The negative, taming the tongue means preventing yourself from doing the damage you are capable of. And point number three, the standard. Taming the tongue means loving God and loving neighbor. So the positive first, point number one. Taming the tongue doesn't just mean saying the things you shouldn't say. It means saying the things you should say. If the tongue is compared to a bit in a horse's mouth that steers the horse or a a, a rudder of the ship that steers the ship, if we're riding a horse or we're steering a ship, we're we're heading in a decided direction. We're, We're not just out there dodging cliffs and icebergs, right? We're steering the horse, we're steering the ship, we're steering our our bodies and our lives in a direction that we have decided beforehand is good and right and profitable. And if if we're followers of Jesus, we want to walk in righteousness and follow him. We're going where he is leading us. We're moving in his direction. We're steering our lives heavenward. You know, you think for a minute, imagine getting into the ring with Mike Tyson in his heyday. And your strategy is just don't get hit. That's not going to go over well. You're going to get hit. And if you don't land some punches yourself, you're going to be in trouble. So it's not just 
not saying the things you shouldn't say. It's saying the things you should. Have you ever received a compliment or a word of encouragement from somebody and thought, you know, they, they didn't have to say that. They really went out of their way to say that to me. You know, they, they thanked you. They, they noticed you. They, they let you know that whatever it, did, whatever it was that you did mattered to them. They let you know that you matter to them. I mean, that feels good, doesn't it? Doesn't that mean a lot to you? When, you, when someone comes to mind, when you're just sitting around relaxing, watching TV, something like that, or you have a fond memory of an old friend, you know, shoot them a text and tell them so. Yeah? Let them know you're thinking of them, that they made an impression on you. Remind them that someone cares about them, that they matter to someone. That's just, I mean, that's one small way of saying things that you should. Just acting on those impulses that God gives you when he gives you a sense of gratitude for the people that he's brought into your life that he's blessed you with. And those are life-giving words that build up. Have you ever had, I'll say the pleasure, that's not really a pleasure, of having someone maybe go out of their way to tell you something you needed to hear that maybe you didn't really want to hear? Those are life-giving words too. You know, Nathan told David, you are worthy of condemnation for what you have done after his sin with Bathsheba. And it broke David's heart. But it changed his life and it put the entire course of history back on God's track. We're very fortunate here at King's Church to have lots of young families that want to grow personally, as families, as the people of God in King's Church. And that's a major part of how God's kingdom works and grows, by you becoming better husbands and fathers, by becoming better wives and mothers. And so my points of application are going to be primarily aimed at the family this morning. Because we're often more kind to strangers than we are the people we say we love the most, aren't we? We hurt the people we say we love the most with our words. So I'm just putting the emphasis where I think we need it most. And those of you who aren't married yet or don't have children yet, this will be good for you too if you desire those things one day, so don't check out on me. I remember hearing about raising children and stuff long before we ever had any, and God really made it stick in my mind, and I could not be more thankful. So you really can. You can, you can kind of smooth the edges of the learning curve a little by, by taking some of these things to heart now, okay? So how does this positive point of taming the tongue, being not just about what you shouldn't say, but what you should say, how does that apply to you in your families? Well, I'm a gentleman, so I always insist on ladies first. Ladies, do not be sparing with your positive words toward your husband. Don't withhold your, your compliments or your words of encouragement from him. The worst thing you can be in your marriage aside from being directly disobedient to God, is to be unimpressed with your husband. 
Don't believe me? Ask him. And maybe you are impressed. Maybe you just feel like you shouldn't have to tell him all the time. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. He needs to know that you notice him. He wants to be admired by you. Not his boss, or his customer, or his friends. That's just... He wants to know that he is admired by the one he chose to join his life with forever. And if he says he doesn't, it's probably because he's just gotten used to not getting that. He's tough. He can take it. But you would be amazed at the man he could be if you treated him like the man you wish he'd be. He needs to know that when you look at him, you see your man. It's okay to laugh and chuckle a little, but if you bristle at that, ladies, that's a problem in your own heart. That's not his problem. That's your problem. It's his responsibility to be worth your admiration. We can say that, yes and amen. It's your job to treat him and admire him until he is, until he becomes that. So there's dual responsibilities there. He needs to know that he is seen by you and that you admire him. Your marriage, y'all, will begin to improve overnight if you do that. It really will. Not for good, it's going to take practice. But it will begin to improve overnight if you begin to do that. When you look at him and what he does, you need to think less about everything you wish he would do and wish he would be and praise God and be grateful for the man that he has given you. And be satisfied with that. Your dissatisfaction and your discontent overall will ruin your marriage. Men, your passivity in your marriage will kill it. You have to be intentional. Guys, that means you got to pay attention. you got to be more in tune. You know, you, you can't just check out on the small stuff. She's not, she's not just an accessory to your life's ambitions. She's not a commercial that interrupts your regularly scheduled programming. If you ask Jesus, he would tell you she is the main event in your life. It's not okay to take her for granted and just be ho-hum and go through the motions at home. You know, you can't just, yes, dear, your way through your marriage. She's not going to be happy with you just going along and being seemingly unaffected by anything all the time. She's going to be happy with you taking action by being intentional by being present, by chasing after Jesus and taking her and your children with you with joy and excitement. And if you feel like she's resisting you more than she's following you, maybe it's because she has no idea where you're going, and neither do you. Do you know where you're taking her? Have you told her? It's not just about saying the things you shouldn't say. It's about saying the things you should. 
Words matter. That's big picture stuff, though, right? That, this is little picture, okay? This is more low-hanging fruit, all right? Guys, I know you think she's pretty. You know how she knows? Because you open your mouth and tell her. And she's forgetful. She's going to forget daily. You're going to have to be in a, in a habit of doing that routinely. And if you have children, they should be in the habit of telling her too. And they're going to learn that from you. They need to be constantly seeing and hearing that daddy cherishes mommy. You know, our boys, uh, Levi especially, he'll tell Amanda every day, Mama, you're so beautiful. And she just melts, you know, she just lights up like a Christmas tree. She didn't feel that way before he said it. You know, she felt tired and, and, and worn out and unappreciated. Your words matter, guys. It's not just the things you shouldn't say, it's the things you should. Don't hold that stuff back. And guys, listen, men, there's a whole complicated human experience happening under your roof that you might not be acquainted with because you never speak up. You don't ask questions. You're just stuck in your own little bubble all the time. You know, her thoughts, her concerns, her worries for the future, her difficulties during each day, her feelings of insufficiency and failure and dissatisfaction with herself. And look, you're not going to fix any of that. Only Jesus can. But he's going to use you in her life. You are a primary instrument that he is using to show her his love for her. That, that's marriage, right? Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage between a man and a woman is, is, is a picture of Christ's love for his church. The church is his bride. And one major way that he expresses his love for his bride is through his word. Words matter. I just want to encourage you all, speak sweetly to each other, husbands and wives, as families. Make it, put some effort into that, okay? Speak sweetly to each other, even if it makes you feel all funny inside at first, you know? Make it awkward till it gets comfortable. And don't bother asking, will it be hard? Ask, will it be worth it? And the answer is yes, yes, it will. It will be worth it. And point number two, that's the positive, this is the negative. Point number two, taming the tongue means preventing yourself from doing the damage you are capable of. James says the tongue is more powerful than the other members of the body. It is so involved in every faculty of our human experience. Thoughts, imagination, plans for the day and for the future, it influences Everything, And that's why James says it, it can stain the whole body. It can do much more damage than just a fist. And James says the tongue is like a fire that can burn down a whole forest, verse 5. It's a world of unrighteousness, he says. It's set on fire by hell, verse 6. Man can tame the most wild beasts, verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It's full of deadly poison, he says. And y'all, look. It's, it's not just that your tongue has this capability or it has this potential. This is your tongue's natural inclination. This is what it's going to do if you don't do anything about it. Like weeds in your lawn, right? You don't have to plant the weeds. They just show up. You don't have to feed and water them to get them to take over your whole lawn. 
They just do. Unless you do something about it. The tongue is destructive. You ever hear growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Well, that's just not true, is it? Words do hurt. Because words can become beliefs, can't they? Beliefs about yourself, about life, about other people. I had a seminary professor one time pose a question to the class. He said, what is the most dangerous weapon in all the world? What do you think? Nuclear bomb? No. He said, a book. Words. Words are the most dangerous weapon in all the world. Because they shape beliefs, which shape characters and principles that people use to determine for themselves what is right and wrong, what is good, and what is evil. Friedrich Nietzsche, if you've ever heard of him, has been hugely influential in the 20th and 21st centuries. He's the one famously quoted for saying, God is dead. His solution is that we all must become gods ourselves. Sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Power. The greatest good is power and the acquisition of it at any cost, according to Nietzsche. And so his works, his writings, his words were used after his death by his sister for Hitler's Germany, for propaganda for Hitler. And it empowered them to justify themselves in becoming the Ubermensch, the overman, the superman, overpowering the weak and the vulnerable. It was the right thing to do. And so killing off those less evolved Jews with too much of their ape ancestor left in them was right and good. You see how words can shape beliefs and ideas and how damaging those beliefs and ideas can be? Words matter. Hasty words, harsh words, untruthful statements, slander, gossip, words of conceit, words of self-pity even. All of these things are damaging, and not just in the moment, and not just damaging for the person they're directed at. They're damaging to you and to your soul. They leave stains and scars. Raise your hand if you have a pretty nasty scar somewhere on your body. You've got a bunch. Foster, it's healed, isn't it? No more bleeding. No more risk of infection. But it's there, isn't it? That happened. Words leave scars. Anyone ever tell you you wouldn't ever amount to anything? That's a hard one to shake. I'm sorry if anyone ever said that to you. That's a terrible thing to say. Anyone ever tell you you were unlovable? Did you believe them? 
don't. It's not true. But those words leave scars. The words people use against us leave scars. They leave scars on you when, when you're the one giving the words too. Have you, ever, have you ever talked negatively behind somebody's back? They, they, they might not ever know. They might not ever be affected by your words, but you are, you're affected by your words. That leaves a mark on you. And here's the thing, too, when we're talking about how words matter and looking at this negative aspect of saying things you shouldn't say or preventing yourself from doing the damage that you are capable of, it's not just words spoken. Right? We're made in the image of God and therefore have the gift of speech, of communication. And, and we don't know how to communicate even to ourselves without words. I mean, what are thoughts if not letters addressed to ourselves or sort of mental diaries that we're keeping in our heads? You know, fingers, feelings of anger and, and, and resentment, and bitterness, lustful thoughts, self-pitying thoughts, selfish ambitions, a critical spirit. All these things have words attached to them. What James is saying is, Control the tongue and you disable the fuse box of sin in your life. The other sins won't have power running to them. It'll be over before it begins. That's what taming the tongue can do for you. Now let me get back into your living room and around your table for just a minute, okay? Because if this is just a Sunday school lesson for those people out there, then you're going to miss it. And James didn't write this letter to those people out there. He wrote it to Christians. Husbands and wives. Are you critical of your spouse? And one of two things just happened there. Did you catch it? The women were sitting there and said, I hope he's paying attention. And the guys were like, she needs to hear this. Preach, preacher. Now, either something like that happened, okay, or the Holy Spirit just alerted you to something you need to change. He rarely alerts you to something someone else needs to change. And listen, the, the healthiest marriages are the ones where when, not if, when a problem arises... Both parties are willing to say, I'm the problem. Not, not one party, that's, that's unhealthy. But when both parties are immediately looking at themselves to find the problem, they automatically assume responsibility and they look for wherever they might be in the wrong. Because look, if you, if you got to take the log out of your own eye to take the speck out of your neighbors, you best believe you need to do that with your husband or with your wife. Amen? Now, ladies, I'm about to ask you a soul-searching question. I don't feel like I need to prepare the guys to step on their toes as much. We can sort that out in the parking lot later, right? But I do feel like I need to prepare you. I want to be as gentle as I possibly can be without dodging a major issue. Do you complain a lot?
that's causing a problem in your home. Because everyone you love and everyone who loves you can see that you're discontent and just really unhappy a lot. Is that who you want to be? Is that what you want to model for your children? Of course it's not. I know that. But your words betray your convictions. Do your words indirectly, I know you'd never say this really, do your words indirectly communicate to your husband that your love for him is conditional? Is it a what have you done for me lately kind of love? If I asked him and he were being honest, would he say that you, it seems like you're always on his case about something and like nothing's ever enough for you? Does he, does he feel like the way to your heart is somewhere on the other end of your seemingly never-ending honeydew list? And when he's not meeting your expectations... Are you cold toward him? Or harsh with your words? Now, listen to me. I know you know this, okay? I know you know this, but it's always helpful to be reminded, okay? He is not your project. He is Jesus' project. And God expects you to help him in the process. Not stand in his way. Men, have you conditioned your wife to be fearful of your reactions? I don't mean physically. That's a whole other issue. That's like, you know, I might have to drag you to jail myself, and then I'll be in there with you kind of thing. I'm talking about verbally, okay? Does she have to defend herself with her words because of yours? When she slips up with her words... Do you go right down with her, or do you pick her up? When she sins with her tongue, do you double down with yours? Do you fall right into sin with her, son of Adam? And then blame it all on her when it blows up and say, she, she started it. Your passivity, men, will wreck you both. Guys, part of your job in taming your tongues at home is simply not taking the bait. When she's weak, you had better be strong. I, I don't care if that sounds unfair. That, that's your job. You know, be a man that doesn't break so easily for crying out loud. Stop being so fragile. When she's getting under your skin and you feel that anger starting to well up in you, you are not justified in whatever's about to come out of your mouth. It is poison. It is fire. And it will burn down everything you say you love. Don't take the bait. And don't retreat either. Don't just shut down and walk away. Because that speaks volumes too. All in all, guys, your wife needs to hear you say what you mean. She needs to know that you mean what you say. She needs you to not be mean when you say it. Say what you mean, 
Mean what you say. Don't be mean when you say it. Tame the tongue. Train it to say the things that it should say and prevent it from doing the damage it can do. You can do that. It's God's will for you to do that. It really is. You know, it might not be his will for you to get that promotion or to be filthy rich, but it is his will for you to love your wife as he loves the church. Not just feel love for her. You understand what I'm saying, right? You know what I mean? Not just feel love for her, but love her. Do it on purpose. Use your words. Use them carefully. Point number three, we looked at the positive and the negative. Let's look at the, the standard. We talked about saying what we should and not saying what we shouldn't. Now let's ground that in God's standard. Taming of the tongue means loving God and loving neighbor. Verses 9 through 12 there. James says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's a problem, a big one. It's not simply an observation, you know. It's a command to change. James isn't, isn't a sociologist. He's a preacher. He's not logging observations on human behavior. He's saying, fix it. Your tongue blesses God and it curses people. It's messed up. It's not supposed to happen. You can't get fresh water and salt water from the same spring. Fig trees don't produce olives, do they? Then your tongue should be consistent with your profession of faith in Christ. It's not a manners issue. It's a moral issue. It doesn't do any good, you know, to, to look at what James calls a great evil and, and just say, well, yeah, that is unfortunate. That is a bummer. I'm just really broken. You know, it's no good saying, well, you know, I'm saved by faith, not works. So I don't really have to worry about doing anything. That's, that's who James is talking to here. That, that, that was the flaw in their thinking, too. You know, if you're saved by faith, James says, it's going to be evident in how you live your life. It's going to be evident in the way that you use your speech. Your works don't save you. They're just evidence that you are saved. And if there's no evidence, I mean, what, what conclusion would you come to? A saved person is a new creation that is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is a lifelong process with lots of ups and downs, but it looks like conformity to the very character of God. It is love for God and love for neighbor. That's our standard. And James says the proof is in the pudding, and the pudding, and the pudding is in how you use your tongue. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about the tongue. James picks up on some of that here. Here's just a few. Listen for the, that positive and negative that we've been talking about. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And the one you heard, Pastor Autry, you know, a little bit ago, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The tongue 
is the master switch in your fuse box. It's more powerful than you think, and it's designed to bring blessing to God and to others. It can sing, and it can scream. It can encourage, and it can complain. It can build up, and it can tear down. And if you don't control it, it will control you. James says the tongue is untamable. Nothing within us by nature can do it. Only the Holy Spirit at work within us can, and he does. You realize the first outworking of sin in the world was an abuse of speech. Take it all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3.12, the man says, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Blaming God and his wife. The first outworking of sin in the world was an abuse of speech. And the first act in the new creation was a renewal of the power of speech. You think about it, Pentecost, Acts 2.11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's what your Redeemer does. He redeems He doesn't just create opportunity for redemption. He accomplishes it. He brings our perversion of his word and our abuse of the gift he has given us in speech. And he brings it back under his authority and he redeems it. And he restores us. Control of the tongue is not just evidence of spiritual maturity. It is the means to it. The main idea of the message this morning was that the key to growing in holiness is taming the tongue. You know, imagine just for a minute, if you, could, if you could prevent yourself from saying all the things you shouldn't say and actually said all the things that you should, would that look like loving God and loving neighbor? Is there any greater commandment than these? No, Jesus says that's the sum of the law, love God, love neighbor, and we can do that better, James tells us if we could only tame the tongue. If if we would do what it was that we were made to do, which is to bless God and others. That's what holiness looks like. It doesn't doesn't look like a, a win for you or a trophy or a certificate of achievement. That's not what we're talking about here. Christ alone is your righteousness as it pertains to your standing with God. Salvation's not a reward, it's a gift, but holiness is something we should desire and pursue because he has saved us. Not just from the guilt of your sin, right? We talk about that part a lot. Not just from the guilt of your sin, but over the, the, from the, the, the power that sin has over you, the control that it has over you. Your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of taming the tongue is an exercise in the freedom purchased for you by Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Use your freedom. You want to talk about freedom of speech? The Holy Spirit of the living God resides in you. And he has redeemed your speech and given you a freedom of speech that can change the world. 
That's how powerful the tongue is. Use your freedom. Use it well. Seems hard, though. I remember being a little boy, shooting a basketball with my grandpa, and I was only about three and a half feet tall, and the goal was 10 feet tall. And I would try and try to make a basket, and he would laugh and laugh, but eventually, you know, he saw how bad I wanted to make it. He would pick me up and hold me up high enough in the air that I could make a basket every now and then. Don't say the goal's too high for me. Don't say, I don't, I don't have what it takes within me, so I just shouldn't try. Shoot the ball. Let God help your aim. And in time, and as you grow, you might make more shots than misses. That's growing in holiness. And James says, taming the tongue will steer your horse, your ship, in that direction that you decided was good when you devoted your life to following Christ. May our words match our convictions. Let's pray. Lord our God, you made us in your image to imitate you. And what was once broken has been restored, and what was impossible for us is now possible because of the life and work of you, Lord Jesus. Work in us through the power of your Spirit and help us to wield the power of speech in a way that pleases you and blesses us and others. God, I pray that you protect the families of King's Church from the snares of the devil. He hates you and us and our families, and he will attack us to thwart your plans for filling the earth with your glory. And Lord, we confess it's the day-to-day -day stuff where we stumble most, so help us be on guard daily and work righteousness in us. For your glory, Father, and for the benefit of everyone made in your image. In Jesus' name, amen.